Absolutely. We provide the the biggest pipe we can, and um, what you do with it is up to you. This is episode 316 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In Mason County, Washington, the local public utility district, Mason PUD3, is building out its open access network so residents and businesses can have access to the benefits of the fiber infrastructure. In order to take a strategic approach to better determine success, Mason PUD is working with COS Systems. By collaborating, they're better able to predict take rates, estimate costs, and make adjustments to their plan when needed. In this interview, Christopher talks with Isaac Feiner from COS Systems and Justin Holsgrove from Mason PUD3. In addition to a discussion as to how Mason PUD3 is using service zones from COS Systems, we get to learn a little about the origin of service zones and how it helps with planning and establishing funding for deployment. Christopher, Isaac, and Justin also touch on the definition of open access and how it varies from place to place. Learn more about COS Systems and Service Zones at cossystems.com. You can also listen to our Community Broadband Bits podcast episode 274 for our earlier conversation with Justin. Now here's Christopher with Isaac Feiner from COS Systems and Justin Holsgrove from Mason PUD3. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Isaac Feiner, Chief Marketing Officer for COS Systems. Welcome to the show, Isaac. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we also have returning guest Justin Holsgrove with the Mason PUD3 Telecommunications and Community Relations Manager. Actually, what I should say is you're the Telecommunications and Community Relations Manager for Mason PUD3. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So, Justin, you were on back on episode 274 back in October of uh, last year, 2017, and we talked about a little bit more of the background. Today, we're going to talk more about how you're working with uh, the software provided by COS Systems, um, and we'll talk a little bit more at the end, actually, about what open access really is um, and, and, and how it may be different from di- in different places. Uh, but I did want to start with just a, a very quick reminder. I strongly encourage people to go back and listen to the show to get get a more in-depth sense of what Mason PUD3 is doing. Uh, but some of the, the key facts, and Justin, feel free to fill in after I, I finish up here, um, is that you're on the Olympic Peninsula. You've got 34,000 electric customers. Uh, you started the fiber network to support the electricity um, provisioning that uh, Mason PUD3 was built to do. Um, you started connecting some of your biggest customers with fiber, and, and basically a lot of your residents said, hey, we need fiber too. We need something because we don't have very good broadband um, if we have it at all. And so you got into the, the fiber business, basically. That's right. And um, for the last 15-plus uh, years, we've been trying to figure out how to um, expand to the rural areas, to the unserved and underserved folks in Mason County, um, but not have that bill be footed by the folks that, um, that, that do have service or that aren't being served by the fiber network. And our Fiberhoods program, uh, I believe, is a great solution for that, and it's, it's going really well. And part of that success uh, has been due to the COS Systems uh, software platform that we've been using. Um, it allows us to identify areas that we um, should be building to because of interest. Um, And it also helps us to define the areas that we can build to um, 
where we have overhead infrastructure, where we can string fiber on our poles, or where we have uh, electrical uh, conduit and fiber conduit in the ground so that we can um, pull the fiber through the fiber conduit, um, et cetera. So that's been a great uh, software tool for us to use um, for communication to our customers, as well as demand aggregation to identify uh, where it would be great places for us to build the fiber network. And Isaac, I'm going to come to you in a second, but I did want to note one other thing that I've said often when dealing with Western counties is that you can both be a county and have tens of thousands of people and be very rural uh, because you are the size of Rhode Island. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes, we, um, we, have, uh, we are the size of Rhode Island. And um, it's an interesting place here in Mason County. We have lots and lots of forested land and a lot of water. Um, we have uh, Puget Sound, we have Hood Canal, and we have um, lakes. Uh, we also border up against the Olympic Mountains, Olympic National Park, et cetera. And so what we have is we have a lot of forested land where there's long stretches of highway um, in between a sort of hamlets, if you will, uh, groups of homes. And, uh, and it actually sets up really nicely. We have one long you know, backbone cable, we have many long backbone cables, but um, if you picture with me going out, one long backbone cable to get to a community, and then we can set a hut and build a distribution network there, and then continue on to uh, the next grouping of homes. It took us a while to figure out exactly the best way to build a network, but now that we've established a plan and some great standards, uh, we're, we're really moving along. So moving over to Isaac, um, you're coming to us from Sweden. And while many people are maybe familiar with Stockholm and the network they have there, I think COS Systems comes out of a tradition of many of the smaller communities in Sweden. Is that right? Well, yes. Uh, we're headquartered up in the north of Sweden, so we're uh, basically on the Arctic Circle. So now we're in 24-7 daylight mode. It actually looks uh, a lot like... Uh, uh, Mason, PD3, uh, their area. In our hometown called Umeå, uh, we had some really forward-looking uh, politicians uh, back in 1990s, and they decided that uh, since we're in a remote location, we need to have good communications infrastructure. So in 1994, they started to build I'm not sure this is true, but it's, it's told to be uh, the first uh, all fiber community owned network um, so even though we're quite a small and and in a you know far away place of Sweden we have a very strong fiber industry here with multiple open access operators uh, operating from our hometown we have many of the largest uh, ISPs up here and uh, we have a long tradition uh, in the north of building fiber based on demand, uh, not only in the north, but uh, in in the country. And when you say that, I think it's worth noting, uh, consistent with, I, I think, what many of us believe, um, that we should have fiber to everyone. Um, you use your software, I think, to figure out how to sort of build first to build a business case, but ultimately how to connect everyone, right? I mean, that's the the ultimate goal. Definitely. Uh, I remember when we when we developed this uh, platform uh, in the first place, and it was actually developed for the U.S. because we we have a, a another platform to uh, operate open access networks. So we went to the U.S. Uh, six years ago, trying to sell it, and found okay, well, they need to build their networks. So then we looked at how 
this had been done in Sweden and we developed uh, this product service zones. And in the beginning, we uh, met some some criticism uh, that, okay, but we are, a, we are a community or we are a city, we cannot cherry pick. And we said, well, no, this is not the cherry pick. This is how we managed in, in Sweden, for example, to actually build to so many rural locations and, and places where it's hard to reach because you build first where you have the most customers, you get the most revenue in, and then you can build the rest of the network with that revenue and even reach the, the more rural locations. So many, many, many cities, they think they, they have to serve everyone, which I think they should. And, and it feels like their first uh, thought is we need to build first those who are worse off. But that's a really hard thing to do because then you basically need all the funding up front. In, in fact, one of the things that I've heard, and I mean, I'm a strong partisan of making sure that everyone has high quality service. Um, one of the things that I've, I've often heard is that, you know, it's not just a matter of, of if you build first to areas that are, have the most subscribers that, um, you can actually build more rapidly then because you have a, a bigger base. Whereas if you if your goal is to try to connect the low income areas first where you may have fewer customers, you will have to build more slowly because you'll have fewer revenues coming in. And, and therefore it may take longer to connect everyone than it would if you start with the areas of, of higher demand. Yes, definitely. And I also think that uh, you, you don't only need it for revenue reasons, also for marketing purposes so if you quickly get a lot of uh, people to use uh, your new services uh, perhaps uh, really great fiber services then there will be more people to spread the word about how great it is and the adaption will be quicker so justin i want to i want to come back to you because you made a comment in our previous show that i think will help get us into exactly how you're using service zones and and the way that it really helps to to structure your build um i don't know if this was before or after you started using service zones but you described a public meeting where you had a sense that there's a lot of interest and as you are mapping that interest you had a map that looks like it had chicken pox because the interest mm -hmm. was scattered all over the place yeah, and that's really what we found is that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we have a rural community where we have people, um, you know, it may be a group of 15 homes, it may be five homes, or it may be 50 homes um, around the community. But um, these people have been, uh, in a sense, abandoned by the private uh, broadband providers um, here in Washington or Mason County. And um, so they, they were very interested. We had a meeting on a Thursday evening. It was a, it was a beautiful day, um, which here in Mason County, when it's a beautiful day, people don't want to be inside. We want to soak up the sun because uh, we get a lot of clouds throughout the year. Um, but, but we had over 700 people attend on a Thursday evening uh, here, in, here in Shelton, which is sort of the, 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 the big town in the county. And people drove um, upwards of an hour to be there to express their interest and their need um, to have access to broadband. And that was really a big moment for us because people were, were starting to show that they were willing to put their time and their money where their mouth is. Uh, it's really easy to say, uh, yes, if, if I had higher speed internet available, I would switch or I would get on it. But, you know, there is an investment that is required by the community uh, to, to have that built out. You know, it was mentioned earlier in the show just, just a few minutes ago about uh, how it's important to, or one of the strategies is to 
um, build in an area where you can get a lot of subscribers quickly. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm challenging that idea, but I do want to offer a perspective. The areas that have a lot of subscribers uh, available are probably also areas where uh, the private internet companies, the Comcast of the world and the CenturyLinks and uh, uh, maybe a, a local carrier um, have already built infrastructure because they are the low-hanging fruit. Um, and I was actually in, uh, let's see, Austin, Texas, uh, and I secure there as well. But I was out having dinner, and um, it was a beautiful night. We were sitting outside, and we looked up at the pole, the utility pole in front of the restaurant, and there were nine contacts, nine communications contacts uh, with fiber and cable plant on the pole. And that's great. That's a lot of choice for those folks in Austin. But when we drove out of the city area, there were uh, one or none. Uh, and I think that that is the issue that we are trying to solve here at Mason PUD3. Um, you know, our city itself is, is well served. It's the folks that are outside of that zone that we really need to be focusing on. And so what we've done is uh, we've, we've tried to define areas, and I think this is the transition to the service zones, is we've defined areas that we know are unserved or underserved, and we've said we're going to focus our attention here. So that when somebody calls you know, from a served area and says, I'm so frustrated at, at Comcast or you know, name whatever private provider um, you want there, I'm so frustrated with them, I, I get slow service um, and I pay high bills and their customer service doesn't care, um, we want you to build fiber to us. Our response is always, you know, we're focusing on the folks that don't have the option that you do. Um, there are people who don't have any uh, ability to be upset at a high-speed internet provider because they don't have the access to high-speed internet. Well, one of the things that I think that leads into a little bit is um, when you are focused on those areas, if you're making an investment, you really want to maximize the number of households that are there. Um, you know, if there's mm -hmm. 50 households and you can have 40 of them serve up, sign up, then that's going to be much better numbers than if only 20 of them signed up. One of the things that service zones and some other software does is it allows uh, people who are excited to really rally their neighbors, right? So um, are you seeing that happening in practice? Yes. Uh, so we launched Service Zones uh, just about a year ago now, I think about 10 months or so. And um, we now have about 30 uh, Service Zones, we call them Fiber Hoods, uh, that are able to be served. And uh, so we had three Service Zones meet their 75% commitment level really quickly, right off the bat, about, um, it took maybe three months. And those are under construction now. Um, two of them are going to be connected within the next uh, week or two, and one of them uh, a couple months later. Uh, so we're really excited for that, and we're excited for those customers to actually see the fruits of their labor pay off. Um, it's really important to get a champion uh, or champions in the community that can uh, you know, do the hard work of, of hounding their neighbors and bugging their neighbors to, uh, to sign up and to uh, make a commitment um, so that we can uh, build a network. There are uh, other kind of the next group of zones that are more slowly reaching uh, their goal, but they, they continue a steady increase of that 75% goal. And, and, and so we're encouraging those along as they go. 
Isaac, I'm curious if you want to tell us what you know what you think makes Service Zone special. I, I certainly really like the ability of potential customers to be rallying their neighbors and and distributing the marketing. But I, I'm curious if if there's another aspect or something we haven't discussed that uh, you'd like to focus on. Well, I mean that's the that's the core of the product, of course. To to divide it up into these smaller zones, uh, set the take rate targets. Uh, try to get people enthusiastic and start spreading the words. But then there are some some things in the back end that not all customers are using, but uh, that is more of a technical side. So, for example, we the system constantly calculates uh, an approximate cost of deploying the, the zone based on how many customers sign up and what services they sign up to. We do that by measuring the distance between the houses between the uh, along the roads and then interconnecting the roads and then you have some rough numbers on on how much it is to connect one house and how much it is to construct one feet of fiber etc so if you really want to get into the weeds you can can do that as well um, we also have something called the service layers that is also a bit advanced you can add on which means if you have a number of houses or a, a, an area that doesn't follow these uh, uh, zone borders, uh, but they for some reason are perhaps more expensive to connect and you need to have a connection fee or a higher connection fee, you can actually group them in these so-called service layers and offer them a different price. So this way you will never have to go back and tell someone, well, you know, it's great that you signed up, uh, but we cannot connect you because of this, or we need to collect a connection fee or something like that. So uh, it depends on how you how you fund your network or, or how you plan, but that is really nice things to to do. Yeah, it's it's uh, really interesting. I, I want to uh, tie back to something that uh, Justin just said, and he said they had their three zones that reached uh, 75% really fast, and then some that are you know a bit slower. This, this happens in all the projects we do. We've done about 100 projects uh, so far in the U.S., and that's typical. You can, you can never tell, and that is why you really have to do this. Uh, I mean, people try to look at demographics. You go for the most dense areas, but as Justin said, there might be a lot of competition there, and people aren't really that unhappy. Uh, so that's why you really have to go out uh, like this uh, with, a, with a tool like ServiceOns and really ask people, do you want this? Because if you build that network in the wrong place first and you spend your money uh, and you get, what, 5% of the customers, well, that is a disaster, especially if this is a community-owned network. How can you uh, justify building anything more? And all the naysayers, they will now stand up and, and say, mm-hmm. oh, what did I tell you, right? You know, you can't build fiber. It's not the right thing to do. Well, if you do it this way and you start, uh, for example, with just in 75%, well, 75% of the customers sign up. No naysayer can come and have anything to say about that. It's a it's a success. You know, one of the strategies that we're using um, right now, actually, in the, in the middle of, uh, is there is a new loan, rural broadband loan slash grant. We only qualify for the loan from the Community Economic Revitalization Board, uh, CURB for short, in uh, Washington State. They were just um, given some money through the legislature, legislative session uh, to make money available for rural broadband deployment. So we're actually applying for it. It's the first round and the first um, opportunity for uh, PUDs in Washington State to apply for 
um, some, some assistance in this way. And what we're doing is we're taking some of our fiber hoods that we know are good projects uh, that are near the network but not the low-hanging fruit, and we're applying for some curb funds for uh, these projects. And so what we're going to be doing, uh, if we're successful, uh, we, we applied for six different zones, fiber hoods throughout Mason County in different areas of the county. So we're not, you know, picking and choosing. We're being uh, kind of fair by spreading it out around the county. And we've picked zones that have not only a good uh, residential population and a population that has been very vocal. Some are close to their uh, 75%. Some are a little bit further away. But we've picked um, areas that are uh, that have some institutions in them. There's a, a state uh, fish hatchery in one. There's a state park in another. There's a Girl Scout camp in, in another one. Uh, there's a, a, a tribal seafood processor in another zone. So these are areas that have cornerstones that are uh, good for economic development, good for community development. Um, and then we'll also benefit by picking up the uh, residential customers um, in the neighborhood as well. And so the application is due on Monday, and uh, we are um, just about done with it, and we're very excited to see if we'll be successful in that. And this will be um, kind of a way to, uh, we say, kind of auto-complete uh, some of the zones that we have selected in that. Yeah, so we're, we're really hopeful for that. Well, I think that points out a really interesting point, which is that, you may want to engage in this as a community before you have a sense of how you can finish off and, and connect everyone because then you will have a more compelling application when programs like that become available. Absolutely. We've definitely used the, um, the insights that we've gained and the momentum that we've created through the Service Zone platform um, to kind of get the, the mass numbers, the, the many residential customers interested and in, in writing letters of support, but we've also been able to use the CURB program uh, to kind of bring the institutions and the businesses on board. They don't seem to get involved too much with the kind of residential service zone type of platform, um, but they do know how to speak uh, economic development language. And that's kind of the, the, the perfect um, harmony uh, for these zones that we have selected. I want to move on to um, just, again, a little bit of a refresher of how you're financing the network very briefly and then get into a discussion of what we mean by open access because uh, public utility districts with some minor exemptions now uh, still have to uh, operate in an open access manner. And, uh, and I know that I, I say that they have to, um, many of them choose to and, and like that very much, um, although it can be restrictive for some. So I'm not suggesting that PUDs are of one mind about that, that model, uh, but we're going to explore that. Um, before that, I just wanted to make sure that we noted how you're, you're financing the network. And that's something that um, yeah, I think is pretty interesting in terms of um, it's very transparent. Basically, if you want fiber to your house, you pay an extra $25 a month on your bill, um, and that's um, collected at the same time that you are paying you know, for the connectivity you're getting. Um, you know, is, there, is there a better way of describing that than I just did, uh, um, Justin? I think that's a very simple version of it, and, and it definitely works. We call it a construction adder, and it's a $25 per month, as you said, for a 12-year period. Um, let's say you connect to the network uh, six years into the 12-year period, well, you only pay for six years of the construction adder because you weren't taking service before that. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts about our program is that let's say you are out in a rural area because you don't want to have, um, you know, Internet uh, access and, and that 
fine. And if you don't want that, then you don't pay for it. And so our construction adder program is uh, designed to have only the people who are taking service and benefiting from the network pay for the network. And that's really important for us as an electric, primarily electric utility. The other question I really wanted to ask you, because <laughs> I saw this before, you know, so I'm paying $25 uh, to have the infrastructure on the side of my house. Um, what am I paying uh, for a gig on a monthly basis? So we do a wholesale uh, rate of $35 per month to our retailers. And that is a gig transport down and up, uh, unlimited data, of course. Um, and then what we have seen them marking up uh, that $35 to is $55 for the first year and 60 um, for years following. And so um, that's sort of what a customer would be expected to pay, 55 or 60 um, And then the construction of $25 is on top of that. And so in these rural areas where you have no other options, some of them are struggling through uh, satellite or data caps on, um, you know, LTE, wire, air cards, things like that, uh, they would be paying $85 a month for gig down and up unlimited data, which is pretty nice when you're considering uh, the avoided cost of the inferior options that, uh, that they're trying for. Isaac, I wanted to, to throw back to you about open access because the way I understand it, and, and I hope you can explain it, the idea of, of wholesale um, is, is not just that an ISP would rent the entire pipe, uh, but that, um, that you handle it differently in, in Sweden. So, so tell me a little bit about how open access differs in North America for the most part versus what you're used to. We have had these community networks uh, since 15, maybe 20 years, and, and the open access model have developed over time. Uh, and uh, there have been different models, but today there is currently almost exclus exclusively one. And uh, as you said, uh, uh, you could either lease the entire pipe to one service provider, but uh, the, the model now in Sweden is that you you wholesale sell it per service. So that means for a subscriber, uh, you could go in and uh, buy any service from any provider. And I think that is the best customer experience you could have. And uh, it is also good for the, the network owner operator because with more choice, uh, it's more likely that you will get high take rates on, on the network. If, if I'm looking for a a bundle of uh, TV and, and VoIP and internet, for example. If I can only uh, have one provider uh, and uh, have their assortment, maybe that's not the perfect uh, solution for me. I would like to pick internet from one, VoIP from another, TV from a third, and uh, that way I will, I will get uh, the best package I can. So it's a bit more complicated uh, having this delivered over one single fiber pipe uh, with the different services and different providers. And that's why you need uh, a system uh, to do this because you, you, define, uh, you define it with software, basically. So you literally split that single pipe up into multiple small pipes. And if I'm going to be a bit forward-looking, uh, everyone is now talking about smart services, uh, smart city services, and telehealth is uh, something... Uh, that is a lot discussed now. I can see, well, this is already here in Sweden and coming, but uh, if you lease the entire pipe to one provider, then somehow the telehealth provider or a provider of any smart city service would have to 
sort of get on that pipe somehow, probably through that ISP if that's even possible. But if you have split split it up, separated it per service, you can actually have a pure telehealth service provider that anyone could pick no matter what internet provider they have or any kind of smart city services or home alarm or anything that you want to provision over the network. It's not a very different, but it's sort of a fine-tuning of, of the model Mason is currently using, uh, which I believe brings even more choice and more value of the network to the subscribers. I think Ammon in, in Idaho, uh, which we've talked about frequently, is, is certainly aiming in that direction. And a number of people have been puzzled, wondering, well, if I have an internet provider, what else would I need? Um, and so because you are more advanced, um, you know, do you see people taking separate services aside from video and telephone and internet? I mean, are there like home, home, home alarm companies or telehealth companies that are using this today in Sweden? Yes, that is definitely coming now. Um, for real, there's been a lot of trials. The, the important thing is you have, of course, a lot of stuff that you can just uh, uh, buy over the top. You can stream Netflix, uh, for example. You don't have to provision that service specifically on your network. But let's say you have some sort of monitoring device uh, at home because you can then be at your home instead of at the hospital and you need a reliable connection. Well, you don't want your uh, that uh, instrument or whatever that is that is monitoring you to start lagging when uh, your your wife is streaming Netflix, right? You, <laughs> that might be a bit risky. Netflix isn't worth it. So you, that is why I, you will see these uh, provision services, I think, because you need dedicated bandwidth uh, for for those applications, and uh, then it's a neat thing if you can split it up by by using smart software right i think i think one of the things we do hope is that there's enough capacity that we don't run into those simple issues but nonetheless you do have different applications having different network requirements and and i certainly think if i was netflix and i was um my my product quality was sort of dependent on another provider um like comcast or or at&t which are increasingly my competitors if i'm relying on them to get to the customers that's pretty scary versus in an open access environment where netflix can have a direct relationship with customers that's pretty exciting and then the most exciting piece of that for a network owner i would think is that you know if mason for instance um is is has a, an open access network on which there's 10 services that people are taking well that helps to pay for the network because you're getting a slice of each of those of each of those revenues rather than just one slice of uh the the full pipe um so i mean i think there's a lot of implications of what you're talking about yeah definitely and also uh when you look at it this way uh, I believe the net neutrality discussion that's been going on sort of solves itself on that kind of open access network. Because if you are buying a service from someone who is trying to prevent you from doing something or throttling you or whatever they they are doing, you can just switch to another provider who doesn't. So, uh, and that would mean you wouldn't lose any other services from that provider. It it, it you, you can pick and choose what you like. So. Right, and that's where I think having like Mason PUD3 there and, and um, is so important because they want to empower the user. You know, uh, Comcast and AT&T desperately don't want to empower the user. So it's worth remembering that we think of these things as utilities for a reason, and that's because 
you know, I think Mason PUD three, Justin, you know, you feel free to provide any anecdotes or, or verification of this, but you know, you kind of pride yourself on running a system that, that allows people to do what they want to do rather than trying to shape what they want to do. Absolutely. We provide the, the biggest pipe we can and um, what you do with it is up to you. Well, I think we've gone on pretty long here. Uh, we've covered a lot of territory, and we certainly have something to come back to. Um, Isaac, I've wanted to have you on for a long time. I hope you'll pass my regards on to the, the many folks at, at COS Systems that we, we see around, certainly Bjorn. Um, but uh, tell everyone we said hello. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been great to be on your show. And Justin, it was great to have you on again. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. You guys uh, keep up the great work. That was Christopher speaking with Isaac Feiner from COS Systems and Justin Holzgrove from Mason PUD3 in Washington. You can learn more about what's happening in Mason County at muninetworks.org. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks, Arnie Hughesby, for your song, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons, And thanks for listening to episode 316 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.